afternoon and welcome to Application Decommissioning Strategies that Increase Data Accessibility and Minimize User Disruption, a Health System CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by LK. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I will be your moderator today. We have some interactive features we're going to be doing today. One is our audience poll. Uh, we welcome questions and comments in the Q&A box at any time, but we'll take those later in the program. And you can download the deck by using the URL on your screen. It's going to be sent out in the chat box, and so you'll have plenty of chances to get the slides if you should want them. Uh, just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, uh, we're going to go about 35 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Mark Probst, CIO at Intermountain Healthcare, Kara Babachiko, SVP and CIO at South Shore Health, and Kamal Patel, CIO at LK. So without any further delay, let's jump right into our conversation. Um, Kara, I'm going to start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Sure. Um, we're a regional community health system um, south of Boston, um, just about 400-bed organization with ambulatory sites, um, urgent care centers, and the like. Um, the organization um, is running an epic footprint today, and we're about to go live with Workday um, in about a week or so. So um, we're doing a lot of replacements of our legacy system. Um, what else? Um, what else would you like to know, Anthony? Uh, I think that's good, unless there are any other salient points to the discussion today, but I think that's fine. Good enough, Kara? Yes. Okay, very good. All right, Mark. A little bit about your organization and role. Yep. Um, so this is Intermountain Healthcare. We're based in Salt Lake City, Utah. We're primarily a Utah-based organization, but no longer exclusively. We have a hospital in Idaho. We have a clinic in Las Vegas, Nevada that we just added. Um, and our health plan is actually expanding across the Intermountain West, as is our digital care. So we're doing a lot of telehealth, uh, I think, in now eight states. So. You know, kind of a, a growing organization, which is new to us. We haven't historically done that. I've been here 16 and a half years, and, you know, we've been pretty uh, pretty much just in this one geography. But we're starting to see growth. Um, yeah, I've been here 16 and a half years, CIO here the whole time, and uh, we have a lot of applications. Still run some homegrown applications. They're kind of in the background, and it actually those are relevant to the conversation we'll have today. Um, a year and a half, almost two years ago, we completed an implementation of Cerner, soup to nuts, so revenue cycle, um, clinicals, the whole nine yards, and we completed that for um, all of our facilities. But with the acquisition, we've got you know a couple of new products, in clinical works, and a few other products in the, in the mix. So um, lots of applications, lots of uh, legacy data, um, and uh, lots of challenges. Very good. Lots of stuff, right? Lots of oh, yeah. stuff. All right. <laughs> Kamal? Hi, I'm Kamal Patel. Uh, I'm the CIO at LK. We started LK in 2002. Uh, LK has about uh, 350 plus employees. We have, uh, uh, and they are all scattered over in 16 different states in the U.S. Uh, 
we work in five segments of healthcare. Uh, so we, we started our business on the lab side, uh, which is diagnostic labs, and most of the lab interoperability data uh, flows through us. So there are 500 different laboratories that we work with. Uh, and uh, over years, we expanded into working with uh, hospitals and health systems for having these legacy systems, uh, working with EHR vendors, uh, we have solutions on the payer side, so uh, on the value-based care, we have uh, solutions out there where uh, some of these payers uh, use it for the quality and risk uh, strategies. Uh, and we are known as the healthcare data plumbers in the industry. Very good. Excellent. Thank you, Kamal. All right. Next question, Mark, I'd like to start with you. Can you give us some examples of application decommissioning projects that you've been involved with. Talk about the types of projects and some of your lessons learned. Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, we've moved off of some self-developed systems that we'd had for about oh, 40 years. Um, and they were, again, everything from general financials, you know, all of your ERP type applications to our revenue cycle, to our clinical systems, and we had all, have a host of these um, self-developed products, as well as a few purchase systems. We purchased systems for you know, the GE Centricity product to, to help in some areas, and PACs, and you know, just remember who Intermountain Healthcare is. We've done a lot of development, and we've uh, kind of always wanted to be out there in the innovation front end. Uh, and we've moved to a new product, and that's Cerner, and that's replacing literally hundreds, if not mm -hmm. thousand or more applications. So we've had lots of data um, and uh, lots of diverse data and not data we wanted to lose. So, um, you know, I think one of the more easily identified decommissioning projects has been Centricity Business. It was uh, all of our reg and sketch for um, our ambulatory uh, clinics. and. Uh, we started to take that on uh, about two and a half years ago as we started to decommission that product. And, you know, we wanted to decommission them because we don't want to pay license fees and, and, and all the infrastructure that supports it. And for our self-developed stuff, although we don't really have license fees, we do because we pay Oracle and other techno technology companies money to, to run those systems as well as all the hardware. So we're really motivated to get it done. And, uh, and so now we're working in some of those other areas, our self-developed applications, in uh, decommissioning them and, and archiving that data. Any thoughts uh, on some lessons learned so far in your experience doing this stuff? Um, I guess a couple of lessons learned. One is this isn't something I, that we necessarily have a skill set for. It's not that because we did a lot of development, we have a lot of technical capability. But I don't really want to dedicate those resources to doing, um, you know, data archiving and and not only just doing the archiving, but creating the tools that would support it so that the data could be accessible. So you know, we learned pretty quickly we needed to have some help there and wanted some help um, for the expertise and just getting it done more expeditiously. Um, mm -hmm. I think that may be the biggest lesson learned. The second one is once you're there, you got to start normalizing that data. I don't want the same potpourri of junk 
that uh, I've had historic and junk's a bad word, but <laughs> a lot of diverse data in a lot of diverse formats that becomes not super useful in those formats. And we still had people that needed to access it for the jobs that they did, whether it was clinical records or you know imaging. Uh, you know, think of all the different areas we deal with. So, um, you know, we also learned we needed to talk about how we might standardize even or more um, as we went into the archive. How could we better use that data moving forward? All right, very good. Kara? So, I'm actually going to speak more of my prior experience when I worked at Partners Healthcare. Um, when I was at Partners Healthcare, um, which I didn't put into my introduction. I was at Partners for just over 15 oh. years. Sorry, right. I'll um, put up and, your bio slide. Go ahead. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it's right. And when when I was actually um, one of the things that I led um, at Partners prior to um, just shortly after I left to go to South Shore, I actually led the um, decommissioning and the legacy archive project. And so part of what we needed to do is we had some sense of urgency around trying to. Um, archive systems, actually some cloud-based systems um, uh, that needed to be decommissioned because, you know, there's pretty high maintenance fees that go along with keeping a system alive when you're no longer, um, when you still need some of the data for legacy purposes, however, you're now moved on to a new system. Um, so part of the project was to find a vendor solution rather quickly and to try to work with a lot of systems that were very different in their, um, their look and feel. So whether it was a, a Siemens system or a Cerner or Meditech across the, um, the platform, there were a lot of different variations and a lot of things we had to think about. Um, but we wanted to kind of do it in a way that would kind of allow us to keep this data for safekeeping um, with researchers and others that you know always want to go back and look at the data and the big data play that's out there for all these um, data elements. It's super important to be able to archive it in a way that you can actually produce it um, when needed. I would say the other thing that we um, looked at is how this plays um, in conjunction with your enterprise master patient index and, and to try to normalize the data as Mark spoke to so that you can actually find a way to ensure that you're kind of looking at the patient holistically across the continuum, even when these disparate systems were kind of more siloed um, back in the day. So um, there was a lot of work that we did in this space. There were a lot of things that I would consider black box work, you know, trying to get the data um, out of these systems. There's different ways and approaches to that, and it varies a little bit on the, um, based on the vendor you're working with in the open technology or closed technology. Um, and, and again, whether it's hosted internally or externally. Um, but we did a, a lot in that space. Um, but the underpinning of, of the first work was trying to make sure we had a, a, a valid uh, master patient index or um, a way to kind of look at the patients across the continuum. And we were able to rely on some of the data that was ADT data that kind of already created a little bit of foundation, but we needed to make sure that data also lived in our archive solution to have um, that, that point of, of comparison across the board. And, um, even today, um, I know I'm still in contact with some of my colleagues, and they're still in the midst of um, finishing off some of the retirement of some of the applications. Okay. All right, Kamal, uh, do you want to talk about, I mean, you've probably done everything under the sun over there, but maybe you want to put them in, in buckets, different types of projects that you guys do? So, uh, as an organization, we do a lot of, archiving across various systems, okay, on um, 
ambulatory as well as uh, uh, hospitals and health systems. The, the ones that I uh, am personally involved with uh, recently has been uh, there's a small health system in a rural setting, uh, community health services, and they had a challenge where all of the physicians are scattered who are sending these patients to hospitals. And having access to records has been something what they, the use case that they were trying to solve was uh, they are an epic shop. They wanted to uh, leverage our knowledge of archive, and they wanted to ensure that when a patient checks in uh, at a health system, they have the data from uh, the cardiologist and the primary care, okay, or the urologist uh, at the check-in time, and at the, and they wanted this data inside the EHR, and. They also wanted to solve the reverse use case, which is when a patient goes to uh, their uh, primary care, the primary care can see the lab results at a cardiologist practice, and the primary care can see the lab results at a urologist. Now, the HIEs were supposed to solve this problem, and the HIEs did a pretty good job in getting data from these health systems, but getting data from these ambulatory or these rural settings has been a challenge. So uh, when I met with uh, the CIO, because okay, I was intrigued by it, and the nice thing at LK is we have our product and implementation team, which is very different than the R&D team, and mm -hmm. the R&D team reports directly into me. So we took this project on that side and we went ahead and it's halfway through implementation and the CIA was going to talk about this project at uh, one of the session at HEMS. Uh, uh, but so uh, uh, I've been very involved with that. It has the same needs as an archive, but it also has interoperability because it has ongoing needs. Uh, so uh, very proud of, uh, you know, solving a real healthcare problem. Uh, and uh, applying innovation. Excellent. Thank you. Okay, next question. Kamal, let's stick with you. Um, talk about the importance of maintaining a positive user experience during a decommissioning. How can this best be achieved? Um, how much of what you're, or the, the, you know, the information or the feedback or the services you're providing your customers uh, touches on that, helps counsel them that, hey, this is important. This is something you want to be thinking about. I think it's, it's I, I think user experience is everything, right? And you, when you look at user experience, working with health systems, you need to know a lot of pieces. So there are departmental, uh, all these various departments within a health system, they, uh, you need to understand them, you need to make sure that uh, whatever you're offering them is catering to them. Uh, so when you're dealing with that level, um, all these various departments who are the end users, so there the big thing is communication and transparency. Uh, you also need to know the management tiers at a health system and the experience that they would need is uh, like a communication, but not an in-depth communication because the things that they are looking at primarily is trust and relationship. So you need to ensure that uh, 
uh, the teams that are working on these projects are educated about these various health systems and you are managing uh, the the PM teams of the project management teams of the hospital. You're managing the technology teams of the hospital. You're managing the C-level folks. Uh, the CMO's requirements may be very different, okay, than a CIO. So, uh, so we so we try to make sure that it is across the board a great positive experience. Very good, Kara. So, one thing that's really important is uh, there are a lot of stakeholders that feel that when you're retiring these systems that they're going to lose the data and or they're going to lose the appearance of the data the way that they need it. So a perfect example that um, comes to mind is uh, medical records. So when they do a request of information, they need to be able to furnish a lot of different documents. So part of the project, a key part of the project is establishing trust and credibility and working with them to ensure that what they consider the legal medical record and what they need to be able to produce uh, these systems can be produced and, and kind of showing, doing a showback of, of how that's possible. Um, so a big part, like I said, is kind of working with the stakeholders to understand kind of what success looks like at the end of the day, and what are the key data elements and even the data elements that they might not need as often, but when they will need to gather them, that they'll be available to do so. So um, we, we kind of have to work closely with the various departments to establish the requirements. Um, while all the data can be kind of put away for safekeeping, and, and that's kind of one of the models that's achieved with the archive, it's really about being able to push a button and, and to display it um, when they need it, when they're asked for both legally or for other you know, revenue reasons, for the revenue cycle perspective, or for um, different accreditations or different reports that they need to furnish. Um, and people who need to, who are, you know, in need of that data can be very uh, worried about how they're going to be able to achieve it. So it really does require a lot of um, constant, you know, show back and, and again, establishing the credibility and, and able to furnish what they need and, and being able to show it to them. So that's a big part of um, the positive user experience. Excellent. Mark, uh, importance of maintaining that positive user experience and any any suggestions on how you've worked to achieve that in past projects? Well, I mean, it's there's, there's so many levels of user in something like this. I mean, a, a project like this could be seen as an incredibly internal to IT technical project to archive data. You know, it is, and these aren't the sexiest things in the world, right? I mean, no one wants to go, oh, yeah, we went live with a new archive. Well, you know, let's celebrate <laughs> that kind of a bunch of end user training. But you do have lots of different users or people that were involved. And, and if you've got technical people that have, you know, managed your systems, some, some instances built them, reported against these systems, you know, you need to engage these folks appropriately. Um, they can become pretty threatened in, in a process like this. You know, if you ask them to do it, then that's one thing. But if you're going to bring in help to do it, you need to be very careful that you're managing at that appropriate level. So you, you know, that one level of technology is just one type of user, and their experience needs to be positive um, because you're going to be very dependent on the knowledge that they bring to the table. But again, in our instance, we didn't really want to leverage them to do the actual um, work of archiving. We wanted to use them to, to go build new systems, but still they were a bit threatened. And so we needed to manage at that level and get those folks involved. 
appropriately and not threatened. Then we have, of course, the, the level of user, which is whether it's a clinician or a revenue cycle person, and all the folks that Kara went through. <clears throat> Keeping them involved makes this, um, again, we need, we need information from people, and we want them to feel like they're part of the solution, you know, not that something's happening to them. And, and when they're part of the solution, they have a tendency to make that process and that solution successful. So obviously engaging the folks that have used the data, have needed to access the data, and will need to access the data. And I think another level of user are all the people that do analytics and reporting and, and that are going to be really interested in, in normalizing data and standardizing it. And, and that group of people needs to be managed as well. And I think it's just, you know, it's good communications. It's um, assuring that you do involve people, that this isn't something happening to them, but something that's happening with them and for their advantage. And when you do that, and I think you tend to be pretty successful. Very good. All right, next question. Uh, Carol, let's start with you. How do you ensure users are properly trained on the new system? And how can you ensure they understand what data has been brought over, what data has been left behind, and how to access it? So I, I think that a big piece is to involve the subject matter experts um, in the project so that they're kind of part of the build and that they're comfortable with the data and the way they need to access it. What you find as well with a lot of these systems is they've um, built the screens to um, mirror, a lot, in a lot of cases, to mirror what um, the end user is accustomed to using so that it's not really difficult um, to understand kind of how it, how it maps to in the archive so they can kind of build um, you know, quick, easy to use push buttons you know, to generate the key reports, but additional screen layout often is very similar to what they're accustomed to, which makes it very easy to train. Um, in addition to that, and I think this is kind of a second piece. It depends on if you're also, let's say, a physician who wants to go back and look at um, past records and, and kind of look at the legacy data that way. We build buttons in our EMRs and others to kind of do that contextual linking, which also makes it very simple to um, grab the patient that you're in right now and look at some of the priors and, and some prior exams or results that they might need to see that were um, furnished in another system providing they didn't already come over through like a CCD or a conversion process. So I think it's really just making it pretty intuitive and, and um, a lot of the vendors are doing that so that it's not very difficult to even understand and, and it requires very minimal training. Mark? Well, I don't know what much what much to add. I mean, Kara really nailed that. Um, the, the key to any 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 kind of solution like this is to minimize the requirement for training. So it actually fits in their workflow or fits uh, an, a simple to hit button within uh, one of their applications where they're going to need or use that data. Um, you know, that certainly minimizes the training requirement, but there are times we need to train and it's just like any other kind of implementation. It's paying attention to um, those subject matter experts and the things that they need and then making the Make it fit in their workflow. Make it something that's useful to them, not something they have to go hunt and peck for. So, but I think Sarah, our Kara did a really nice job. Very good, Kamal. I, I think I think Kara answered it okay. And like uh, Mark said, the only thing I would add is, uh, 
understanding all these various departments and because their needs are different, what we typically end up doing is we approach the training with the mindset of these various departments. So if you're talking to HIM, then we are talking more about, hey, here is the process for records release. Okay, here is how you can get these various documents on. And, and I, I feel like uh, that has been uh, an area of our strength where when you talk to the audience for their specific workflows uh, and then ensure that they actually understand it because we don't want to create a situation where, hey, there are all these nice fancy features in an EMR and half of them, they never get used. So we want to make sure that the functionalities that are not only available, uh, they can do the job, but also help them save time and do it better. Very good. I want to ask a, a follow-up question to you, Kamal, and it's based on something that Mark was saying. Uh, and Mark, if you want to jump in and clarify to make sure I have this correct, it sounded like you were saying when you bring in a third party, Mark, you have to be careful that the departments involved that, with the, that the third party or that the vendor is interacting with, you have to make sure they don't feel like they're being run over. Uh, Mark, can you give me a little more color on that? And then I, I'd like Kamal to give some feedback on um, if that's the case, Kamal, how do you at LK, when you're going in to departments, how do you make sure that the people in those departments don't feel like they're being run over? So, Mark, first, can you – is that do I have that correct? Yeah, pretty much. The, listen, it's, it doesn't matter whether you're doing data archiving or whether you're trying to build a new PMO functionality or whether you're working on some kind of uh, cost reduction within your department. A third party content can be intimidating to people, and uh, you know, particularly people that take a lot of pride in the work that they do day to day, and and you know, they'll uh, it, that just creates a challenge. And so, in this particular instance, it's a different set of people that can be challenged by it, but um, they can feel intimidated by that third party presence. So that that was my thought, and I'll let Kamal take it from there. Yeah, Kamal, I'd like to, to hear from you about um, if you understand what Mark's saying, does that make sense to you, and how you at LK, when you're going in, are there things you do to make sure that the, the people you're working with directly feel like you're more of a partner? So we try, so it's, this is, you know, in general with anything, right? It's not necessarily healthcare, okay? When there is change, okay, every everybody's hesitant, and especially for something... Uh, a system that they've been using for years, okay, and there is going to be a change. So what we have done on our end is we uh, go on site. We uh, uh, have people who have been, like, so for HIM departments, okay, we'll have somebody who understands that world and who can talk to them in the language, okay, that they're used to seeing, okay, and then present a value so it's not only like, hey, the CIO has signed off, okay, now we have a contract, okay, so we proceed. Um, there, so there is always this process about getting a buy-in from the various stakeholders. And, and, and once you build that trust, okay, it really impacts positively on the projects that we are working on the health system. So uh, it's always a challenge. We are always learning something new. Uh, uh, and uh, but we but we try to bring in these right people who can try and mitigate okay or 
build that trust. And sometimes the process takes a while, and sometimes they see that, hey, you know, these guys are really going to help me with uh, doing things better and faster. So uh, there is a lot of support. Very good. All right, next question, and we're going to put this to Kara first. Um, is it a best practice, I would imagine it is, to consult users about their data needs and workflows before developing an application decommissioning strategy? Uh, that probably is an obvious yes, but maybe add some subtlety to your answer, Kara, about maybe how, and is it possible to consult too much uh, to, to open things up to where it gets really messy and you're getting a lot of requests that you can't accommodate everyone? So, right, I, I think the answer is, of course, you want to consult the users um, before developing the application, but to your point, how much do you keep consulting them? So, I remember when I was doing the project, um, when I was at Partners, there was um, very clear um, understanding of what was considered request of information and what was in the legal medical record, and you would gather that information. And I remember we were going to retire um, one of the emergency room applications at one of the hospitals. And we kind of agreed on here are all the data elements, here are the most common reports. And just when we thought we were all said and done, um, one of some of the physicians, the ER physicians kind of came forward and they said, well, we get sort of, uh, we get um, different things that were a credentialing group need to come through and look at some of these reports. And if we were ever, um, audited, even though it's not in a legal medical record, here's some additional information we need to capture. Let's say it was around EMS and, you know, how the patient came in and it was a, a subsystem that wasn't part of any of these systems. So it kept kind of piling on. It, was, it mm -hmm. felt like it was never done. Um, right. And so that's kind of one of the risks that you run is, you know, people worry about being asked for something that might come up once every 10 years and you have to either you, you, you don't want to sit necessarily say no, but sometimes going down that rabbit hole of trying to get that data, which isn't very easy to achieve, um, can add a lot of time and hours um, and dollars to the actual project. So you, you kind of need to understand up front. And then I think the only other thing I would say is really to understand is there are another way to get to the data if it's not through the archive. Um, and, you know, are there some things that you just have to make a determination that this is a report that you know maybe once every 10 years is needed, mm -hmm. and if they really need it in that format, maybe you just spool it and 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 keep it stored in a different format rather than go through kind of the mechanisms and the mechanics of doing the data field mapping and creating tables and all those things. So I think it's you got to look at the one-offs, but you really want to capture. I'd say when you prioritize what you're going to be decommissioning, try to go for the big wins if you can first, you know, the big systems that you're paying a lot of um, yearly maintenance to it and or it's very aged and on um, old infrastructure. And then from there, you know, kind of look at what are kind of the, the lesser things that might be more complicated and not necessarily worth the, worth the squeeze, if you will, or you, know, you kind of let them do their rundown um, before you go, kind of put them onto the archive. So I don't know if that kind of looks at the strategy in a little bit of a different way, but yes, you know, kind of prioritizing what needs to happen first and, and working with the end users to develop that. It's going to be important. All right. Very good, Kara. Mark, uh, can you uh, overdo uh, consulting with these folks and getting, getting their feedback? Well, sure you can, like in anything else. I mean, 
They, they have a certain level of interest, and you need to make sure that conversation is at the level of interest that they have. And that's certainly not going to be at the, you know, every time, sometimes, but not every time at the individual data item. You know, at Intermountain, I, I don't think we've ever seen a piece of data that we haven't just fallen in love with and want to keep, want to keep forever. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's, um, it costs money. I mean, all of this costs money, whether you're doing the work to decommission it and, and archive that data, or whether you're maintaining it and you're using it for future reports, and, or that you're trying to keep it synchronized. And I mean, think about keeping it secure, keeping that data. It, it, all of these things go into play. And having the right conversations with our participants, our end users, is um, really important for them to understand that and understand that there's a cost associated with it, understand that there's risk associated with it, and that they keep the right things and, and that it's going to really have a use versus just, you know, go into the attic with all the rest of the stuff that we have in the attic. So, but, yeah. All right, very good. Kamal, I want to, there's an audience question. I want to get it in front of you, uh, get your thoughts. What, what data validation techniques would you recommend to ensure the data has been effectively archived before de decommissioning the system? Any lessons learned in this regard? So this this goes uh, this ties it into the previous question, okay, which is around uh, uh, while the uh, you were talking about best practices for user experience, okay. So when you look at what are the best practices, okay, uh, that we have built the quality and the integrity of data is the most important piece. And uh, uh, we have a 50-page manual that around different processes that we have put together where uh, what are the different QA teams involved, what are the different uh, uh, processes that are done, at what levels that they have done. So um, I'll give you a high-level snapshot. So when we are doing uh, uh, any data migration projects, we identify a batch of users, uh, sorry, a batch of uh, records that we want to migrate, okay, that apply to, uh, let us say, if we are migrating 10 million patient records, then we'll create a batch of 2,000 patients. And uh, we work with the health system teams to identify which those records are going to be, so we get a good mix. Once those records are identified, we run them through as if it's a real project all the way to the tail end. And the health system, the various teams, they get an experience around uh, what kind of different quality uh, checks are performed. So things around uh, medications, allergies, notes, labs, all these various formats. Uh, so we ensure that there is QA across each one. The, um, so a QA sign-off needs to happen at three levels within our organization, and the health system also has to sign off. Um, the, and we compare you know, within it. I mean, there are things around comparing the number of record counts. There are uh, uh, comparing the the documents, looking at screenshot to screenshots, and then running the algorithms that we have uh, built around each of these systems. Um, so uh, it, it's a, a great question, and, and, and I think that uh, it's also the most important part of which vendor you want to choose and what the QA processes are. Okay, very good. All right, next question. Um, getting it wrong. Uh, so the short, the short question is here is, 
any common mistakes that you can imagine people making, uh, rookie mistakes that uh, you learned either the hard way or you just saw and realized that's not something we want to do. Mark, let's start with you. Well, since I've probably made every mistake you can in the uh, CIO role, um, this probably should be easy for me. I'm not sure that it is. I, I, I think getting um, not having enough thought about the end game is a is a rookie mistake, I guess. I hate that sounds derogatory to me, but it, it's a mistake, right? I mean, you really need to give enough thought to what you want the end game to be or what you could do is create a whole bunch of data archives and that are not going to be um, well linked or well standardized and you know you could end up having to do the job again to get it to the to the place that you want it to be so I think not having a good plan in place and then just kind of reflecting on a lot of the things that Kara was talking about which I think were really good um, it's making sure that it's aligned with the expectations of what our users need. And, you know, not too little, not too much, but really thinking through um, the level of detail that we need as we move forward and prepare these systems to decommission. Mark, can you give me a little bit more about when you talk about an end game and your vision for the end game, can you give me an example, uh, just a little more information about that vision, what it might look like, what it should look like? Well, yeah, I mean, we want the data to be usable, right? I mean, we, and, and applicable to the various areas that might want, might want to use it. Um, you know, we talked about medical records, and you could look at that as simply a clinical record, or you could look at that as a clinical record that has all kinds of other linkages into what we do within a health system um, from an analytics perspective, but also from a financial perspective, what we do through RevCycle. Um, what we do around research. So there's all these uses. If you're not thinking through that, you could do something that's a little too focused um, and, and just not able to resolve what are going to be their current or future problems. Kara, your thoughts on the question, and if you want to touch on Mark's, uh, you know, what he was saying about a vision for the end game, which I find an interesting concept. Mm -hmm. So I, I totally agree. Um, you have to think about what the strategy is before you start doing it, because if you don't build the right foundation to be able to use the data and to link it with other um, key data strategies, it's going to be a little flawed, right? If you just start kind of taking them out of offline, these systems offline, and they don't kind of um, have any type of integration or, or you don't really know how they map back to other data elements or, or that even the same patient, that could be problematic. Um, in terms of, where you might get stuck, um, which is something jumped out at me. And I remember when I first started looking at this, um, again, when I was at Partners, there was an idea that it was going to be really important to do some tight integration with this system and our new EMR. And with the idea that, you know, a lot of the physicians really relied on this data, you know, um, even if it was a couple of years old and they want to go back and look at the patient data. What we found um, in reality is it, it doesn't happen as often as you think, and it's kind of those rare circumstances. And if you think of the, the day in the life of a physician and, and how often they're so, um, their time is so precious and they're, you know, especially in the ambulatory care setting, they're seeing so many patients, you know, they could be seeing up to four to five patients in an hour to expect that you're gonna actually not only go into the EMR, but then jump out of that and, and go into your archive system to look at some 
passed exams and, and results of that is, is probably really not that realistic. Um, and we kind of learned that. So, sure, there's going to be the one-off circumstance where you might need to go back, and it's great that we have it. But don't over-engineer that, and, don't, and I would say probably don't overthink that, um, at least within uh, the day-to-day -day practice of, of linking up with the EMR. So that's kind of my lesson learned. Excellent. Thanks, Kara. All right. Uh, going to go to an audience question. Kamal, let's put this to you. <clears throat> How long after a transition to a replacement application with a decent amount of data conversion would you recommend to keep the legacy app in place before actually pulling the plug? A prime example, uh, I guess, would be an EHR where patient records may need to be available long afterward is what we are thinking about. So what specific alternatives have you employed to provide access to this historical data? What are your thoughts there, Kamal? So I think this is uh, a strategy uh, decision, okay, from the health system side. So uh, think of it in terms of what are the important pieces. So why do uh, health systems want to retire this legacy system? A bulk of the time today, I think it revolves around money, saying, hey, you know, there are some cost-cutting strategies. Okay, let's go around it. Uh, then people start looking at compliance. And uh, when they look at compliance, they look at, hey, you know, we are a uh, health system. We don't have a whole lot of pediatric patients. Okay, so we want to keep this data for seven years or 10 years, okay, just to make sure that we are following the rules. And then there are health systems where they want to keep the data, okay, for research. They want to uh, uh, provide the data and do something else with it uh, for analytic purposes. So depending on these use cases, the strategies around deployment is uh, what we are seeing in the market. Now, one of the things that we do very, and we work very hard on this, and it's also an area of differentiation from everybody else in the market is, when you retire a legacy system, it's really easy compared to what we are doing, which is, hey, you know, run a whole bunch of reports, convert them into PDFs, okay, and then load it, okay, and you have your data. Um, the, what we do is we want to make sure that, that we bring in discrete data because you don't know. Uh, so if you're pulling in medications, you're pulling each and every field within the medications, okay, and then storing it, and there are, there are hundreds and hundreds of these fields, okay, just within the medications itself. So this allows them that after two years or three years, okay, as the strategies evolve, they may want to take this data and apply it into the pop health system. They may want to take this data, okay, and build predictive models around it. So um, the, that is what we are, uh, 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 the, so I want the hospital CIOs, okay, to think about, hey, you know, what are the short-term things, okay, and what are the long-term things in terms of how long we want to keep it? Um, and if our clients, they want the data back, we do give the data back to them with specifications so they can do other things with it. All right, very good. Next, uh, we've got another audience question here. Uh, how, do, how did you achieve, how did your archiving strategy or solution for clinical versus financial or billing data differ? How do you manage around the decommissioning of a system that has both clinical and billing data with different archiving dates? Um, Kara, let's see if you've got thoughts there. 
Boy, am I okay, glad. So. Yeah, you're next. <laughs> you're next, Mark. <laughs> so um, that's a, a lot of um, different things to talk about. So first of all, um, that you can use the same solution for both clinical and billing. Um, I've done that with um, different products. I would say that the go back to first of all go back to the legal requirements and and also the patient care requirements right so you're going to have state and federal requirements for how long you keep some of the legal data the revenue side is generally a little bit shorter and that could be for other auditing reasons or different financial constraints so your organization might want to go back and do analytics on it um, but what I've seen done is um, Say, for instance, you go live with a product and you want to actually archive the clinical system and still work down the billing accounts receivable. A lot of the products will actually allow you to use more of an active archive where you can even post into their archive. So I've seen that that actually um, is a solution that a lot of the vendors are offering. Or you can create a manual mechanism um, to do a, a offline system posting if you want to reduce the AR and pay off the claims. Um, and in case you ever need to rebuild and do things like that. And so the other thing I would caution us about is, you know, one, one example jumps out to me, and it's probably a small example, but you could put a different you know, product name to it or a different type of system, but home care. Um, and a lot of organizations I've, I've gone into, they could have had two or three different home care vendors in the course of six years. Am I going to retire all of them? Probably not. I'm probably going to go back to, you know, the most recent, maybe one behind the most recent, if those systems are aged and I feel the infrastructure is failing. But the, um, again, the cost and the, the time to archive six systems back um, for something that's no longer even federally or state, state requirement is, is probably not going to get us that far. So you got to really kind of do a T-chart or the pros and cons when you approach some of these systems. But I would offer that you can do, um, you know, active and different types of archives both for both clinical and billing. Um, you want to look for a solution that has that flexibility. And, you know, five years ago, it wasn't that common. Now, now most solutions are doing that um, and allowing you to kind of do both types of systems and, and, and building it that way. I don't know if that answered the question. Um, I think the other one, like, for instance, that's a great system that you have to think about is how often how far back do I need to go on time cards and whether I need to retain um, electronic time cards when I've converted to a new payroll system. Those are decisions as an organization you need to look at, but you also need to look at, well, what's the legal requirement for how long I need to go back if someone challenged that their time card wasn't processed correctly? Um, and is this the right solution for that type of thing? So you can even do things like that within a, a product like LK. So I don't know if that kind of gets to that question. Well, doesn't hurt. Doesn't hurt, Carol. Let's put it that way. Um, yep. <laughs> Mark, anything you want to add there? I mean, just goes back to that end game conversation. I mean, there's a lot of requirements. There's a lot of regulation. There's things that need to be understood as you enter down this uh, this road. But I agree. The, the, the tools today are far more flexible and uh, um, if it's thought through, all that can be done, whether it's trying to align the, the clinical and the financial data or um, or the uses of that data. So, yeah, I mean, I, that was, again, Kara is my uh, my hero. Very good. <laughs> He's my hero, too. No doubt about it. 
Um, I re I, we have a few more minutes left, so I want to quickly get to do our Ask a Co-Panelist feature, and I'd like Kamal to go first. Kamal, do you have a question for Mark uh, and Kara? You could either pose the same question to both of them or a different one for each. Anthony, I came prepared. So, uh, yeah, uh, excellent. I have two difficult <laughs> questions, okay? One for Mark and one for Kara. Make sure they're very difficult one for Mark, like super difficult. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll start with Mark, okay? Um, I want, uh, the, the question I have is, when we met at Chime, okay, a couple of years ago and talked about uh, different things, uh, what made you decide to partner with OK? Oh, it, that, I mean, that's easy because the technology are table stakes, and um, it is good technology that LK has, and it's, um, you know, it, it, it's got all the characteristics that Kara talked about, but it's the people. It's who I trust. It's who I trust I can work with, and um, that would be, without a doubt, the, the reason I selected LK. Very good. Uh, Go ahead, go ahead, Kamal. Anthony, sorry, I'm doing your job. <laughs> no, it's fine. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, Kara, why why is data in healthcare important? Okay, is archiving the data just for saving money and compliance, or does it have more use? Oh, data in healthcare is gold, and to so many people. And and then one of the questions I was going to even ask. Um, going forward was, you know, asked Mark was even what Intermountain is, um, how rich they, they've used this data and what they've been doing with it. And, you know, this is kind of a bigger strategy. I think if you start to look at all the data from the old systems, it can start to, to tell the, the story. Um, I would say every piece of data is not equal. They're not all equal pieces of data, right? So some things can be very, like, could be liquid gold and other things could be something that you might never need to get back to, but you want to preserve it um, for safekeeping in case you do need to do some different analytics. Um, you know, kind of looking at where we're going as uh, organizations and the algorithms we're trying to build and, and some of the deep learning and machine learning, a lot of this is based on having that big data, which is really, um, you know, in part what you get from retiring these systems to go back and, and look at past experiences and, and to tell the story so that you can build um, a more robust algorithm for the future. So I would say that this stuff is, is super powerful um, and it helps kind of uh, set the underpinning for what you might then want to leverage with um, analytics in the future. Excellent. All right. Well, that is about all we had time for today. I want to be respectful of everyone's time. Uh, regarding continuing education, you can see the final uh, slide in this deck for your CEU programs. You'll receive an email when the on-demand recording of this event has been posted. If you want to sponsor one of our upcoming events or book a custom event, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team. And you can go to our website to register for one of our upcoming events. So with that, I want to thank our excellent panel. Mark Probst, Kara Babachikos, and Kamal Patel, I want to very much thank LK for making this valuable conversation possible, and I want to thank you for continuing to come to our events. We appreciate it. With that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.